Um, hey everybody, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for joining us. My name is Isaiah Weiner. I'm a uh, manager of solutions architecture in the partner team. What that means is that um, I spend most of my day working with ISVs and consulting partners, um, not necessarily uh, directly with customers. We do get a lot of customer escalations. Hi, I'm Henry Axrod. I'm the uh, tech lead for the uh, uh, storage uh, partner segment. So I'm a partner solution architect, which means I you know, work with uh, various storage partners on their integrations with, uh, with AWS. I've also been uh, out in the industry as a customer uh, for you know better part of 20 years. So today we're here to talk about um, migrating workloads with funny I.O. Uh, patterns and how, how do you... Um, how do you sort of plot a course so that you don't get uh, in a position where you have to back things out? Um, just to help us guide the conversation, um, if we could have a show of hands, uh, who's a partner? Cool, so most people are customers, that's great. If you're a partner, are you a consulting partner or are you a technology partner? ISV or uh, like an SI? ISV, okay, all right, cool, great. Um, all right, I think we're ready to get started. So yeah, uh, let's get going. Yeah, awesome. So is it okay with you guys if we sit? Yeah. All right. Thanks. Yeah. And, and just and just before we uh, jump in, you know, we just also wanted to share a few, uh, you know, other breakouts that you guys might be interested in. So uh, feel free to grab a screen capture, take a look at uh, some of these other um, sessions that are part of the uh, the Global Partner Summit. So the format for today is going to be um, we're going to talk. Sort of in a dialogue, um, we have noticed, at least I've noticed over the last few years at reInvent, that um, when I stand up and, and read text, that it, uh, it does not necessarily the most engaging format. Um, and so we thought it would be, we thought it would be better if it was a dialogue. Um, we've both been customers in the past, and uh, we have found that uh, the kinds of questions that customers ask, or the, the kinds of discussions that we end up with cu in with customers, are lead us to guide our partners towards making better products. Um, and so we hope that um, uh, one day nobody will have to ask the questions that have led us to, to build this content. Um, we will have a live demo, uh, and then we'll have some, some discussion afterwards as well. And we'll stick around afterwards if you guys want to ask questions. So the challenge is that uh, there's this, this notion of sort of peak to averages. Like, for example, the, the reason that everybody loves S3 is that you can't be your own noisy neighbor. But in on-premises infrastructure, that's not necessarily the case. And when people look at moving things to the cloud, that's not necessarily the case either if it's something that they're going to manage inside of their own VPC. Uh, and so the, the, the three questions that pop up um, in a recurring fashion are, uh, you know, how should I scope my migration? Uh, how do I move the bits in a way that is going to be effective? And then how do I pick my solution? Now, the last one is something that Henry and I are um, well-versed in. Because we work with all of these ISVs, uh, people often ask, um, I see in the marketplace there's you know, thousands of, of offerings. How do I know which one is the best one for me? Um, and so we're going to start asking questions that hopefully will steer you towards that answer. Um, there's also uh, inside of the APN, which is the Amazon or the AWS partner network, um, we have uh, a program approach, a programmatic approach called the, uh, the competency program, where we shortlist solutions that we think um, customers are going to have a good day with. Uh, and then ultimately, um, the, when we work with the field, um, uh, the engagement process that a customer has, not only with their SA, but also with the field support of that partner, it all goes back to whether or not we would recommend something. So very often somebody will say, hey, would you recommend uh, you know, Acme uh, NAS inside of, my, inside of my, my VPC? And the answer might be um, yes, uh, with maybe some caveats, because I want to find out what kind of workload you have. Or the answer might be no, under absolutely no circumstances would I recommend that. Um, and so those are sometimes difficult conversations to have. Um, the good news is, is that we get to sort of stay uh, somewhat neutral. Um, because we're in this for customers having a good day. We're not in it to um, uh, make money for our partners necessarily. Not to say that we don't want them to be successful, we do, but we start with our customers and we work backwards and we want them to develop superior products. Absolutely, and that's where we really kind of uh, focus. So when we're talking about solutions, we're talking about from a customer perspective and what you know customers are able to gain through those various solutions. So we're not you know promoting products and we don't 
put products in our competency because of you know uh, anything the partner is doing other than you know helping customers and being beneficial to customers. So uh, when we're looking at uh, what solution to pick, it's going to be purely data driven based on the requirements uh, that we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes. So both from a performance and a feature perspective. So when people start down this path, a lot of times they have a checklist of things that they want to work on. Um, and uh, at Amazon, we say that um, without a mechanism, everything is just good intentions. So we want to help you build a mechanism uh, to that end, um, something that you can, if you, if you don't have an approach to this, um, you know, it would be the sort of thing that, um, if you don't have a checklist, these are the things that you would sort of want to stage and scope the, the work in. So we start with uh, identify. Uh, and identify is important because it's the initial part where you're going to do data gathering. It's, it's the approach that you're going to take um, when you're invest investigating into things that you actually might not have any, uh, any insight into. And what I mean by that is that if you're an application owner, you might not know anything about your infrastructure. And if you're an, a person who works in IT, you actually might not know anything about your applications. And we see this a lot, so we want to meet in the middle somehow. Um, the second step is to baseline your performance. Um, that doesn't mean run a benchmark. Benchmarks are a religious topic inside of Amazon. And when I say they're a religious topic, I mean we have lots of people who say things like, without this industry standard benchmark, how can a customer know what to expect? But the flip side to that argument is, without trying your workload, how can you know what to expect? So you could run the benchmark, and if your application workload doesn't look anything like your benchmark, then, then you know, it doesn't help you, right? So, um, so the right answer in some cases is to do both. For example, um, uh, in uh, financial services, you know, the stack benchmark is something that people sort of you know, use across the industry to know whether or not it's something that they should even look at. Uh, whether or not it works for their, their workload is orthogonal to that. If they don't have the benchmark, it's a checkbox requirement, they won't look at it. So, um, so we don't necessarily mean benchmarking, but we do mean baselining to understand whether or not you're going to have that peak to averages problem, um, whether or not uh, you understand what your individual workload is. Um, the third part is uh, giving things a go inside of AWS, um, and part of that is deciding where to put things. Uh, and where to put things is made even more difficult after today's announcements. Um, there's new storage services and there's new features uh, that um, approach things from new angles. So for example, um, if you have an HPC environment, you might have a, a scratch environment on um, a service that we released today, right? Uh, the FS FSX for Lustre. Um, and that's, that's, that might be not what you need because you might need something that's persistent all the time. Maybe a scratch environment isn't what your workload needs. Um, and so that's the kind of thing uh, that you, you need to um, look into as well. How am I going to be using it? How are my users going to be using it? Do I need the notion of multi-tenants? Um, and then lastly, after you do move it to AWS, um, how do you make sure that things are healthy? Um, because as we all know, not, nothing is stagnant forever. And not only does your, if you're in IT, not only do your applications change their profile over time based on the success or failure of your business, but if you're uh, in the application side of things, you're probably making modifications to your applications. You're probably changing the I.O. profiles. Uh, and so that means that a combination of uh, how your application behaves uh, in, uh, when combined with um, the load at scale that you're, that you're giving it, um, combined with um, how things on our side work. For example, if you're using one of our multi-tenant services, you might find that it doesn't behave all the time the way you would expect. And these are all things that we can uh, help with from a, from a monitoring perspective. So what are some candidate workloads? Um, well, the, the easiest ones are things that uh, are touched by people. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, we've gotten a lot of data back from uh, technology partners that show that things that are managed by people, generally speaking, after like 30 days, 98% of the data isn't touched anymore. So this is a nice low-hanging fruit. Test and dev environments are things that um, are often fungible. So these are our great candidates. Um, file synchronization processes are great candidates because, generally speaking, they're, re they're repeatable and you know very well when things aren't going the way that they're supposed to go. Um, things get more complicated when you get into uh, things requiring like MPI uh, compatibility and fully POSIX compliant um, uh, platforms um, in the form of HPC clusters. Um, and then lastly, uh, because everybody tends to sort of pile everything that maybe should live in a file system into a database these days, uh, it's often the case that databases have weird I.O. patterns.
think I left anything out? No, I think you covered it pretty well. It's just, uh, I think, also important uh, to know that, you know, what uh, resource constraints happen on the different, uh, you know, candidate workloads can affect what your overall I.O. requirements are going to be. So, uh, you know, for example, like you said, in file synchronization, you might have a much more throughput-heavy uh, requirement. It could still drive heavy I.O. depending on, you know, how much you're actually pushing through, but you have to consider, you know, the throughput implications on top of just looking on the I.O. So if you're looking at it from purely simplistic perspective of, okay, let me just do an I.O. profile, but not considering things like throughput, depending on which of these, uh, you know, workloads or what your ultimate workload is, you may be able to meet that I.O. Uh, requirement, but your, your end customer uh, who's utilizing that is not going to be happy because it's not going to meet the throughput requirements that they have. So it's funny you should mention that, actually, because um, you guys know DMS, our database migration service. Um, people sort of stand it up and leave it up. And one of the most common use cases is that they'll have an OLTP environment on-prem, and they've got data in their OLTP environment that they're collecting that they need to run OLAP jobs on. So they'll use DMS to actually synchronize the data out of their OLTP environment into their OLAP environment. The OLAP environment might actually be inside of AWS where they can spin things up and spin things down. Um, and, then, uh, and they don't care how long things take as opposed to their OLTP environment where they do care how long things take, right? Um, so uh, these are sort of this notion of I'm gonna be a noisy neighbor for myself in the process of synchronizing something. Something that's actually, I think it's pretty real. It's a real, real phenomenon. Sure. Um, you, you know, you were in the media industry before. Um, what were the things uh, that, when you were doing I/O profiling, that were the most important? Did you have seasonal elements? Was it time-based constraints? I think it was a, a little bit of uh, of all that. I mean, we definitely had you know peaks depending on you know, what was going on at a particular time, not only based on the application that you could see historically over time, but, you know, there was event-driven, uh, you know, I.O. load or event-driven uh, throughput load in the media industry especially, and that's why I mentioned, you know, throughput is very important, you know, when you're dealing with, um, you know, sequential I.O. And, uh, and reading big video files or, or other types of media. Uh, and, you know, there would be, you know, let's say uh, 10 poll events that you may or may not know about. Uh, there may be, you know, just immediate events like um, a celebrity dying, for instance, that would have, uh, you know, us restoring a lot of data from archives onto primary storage and processing that data. So understanding, you know, not only what your application pattern is regularly, but what the capabilities of that application are. So what for instance, your corner case is going to be? Yeah, yeah. So if you had, a, you know, a need to actually fully exercise your farm, if you had a big compute farm and you needed to fully exercise that at peak, what that ultimately looks like. And it do you need to account for that? So when people are looking at their I.O. patterns and they start collecting data, um, that data that they're collecting, uh, you sh I, I, what I hear you saying is don't collect it for a week and think that you've seen everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at uh, file profiles in or, you know, profile of performance in a very um, narrow way, uh, you can profile something for an hour, for a week, for, I mean, for a day, for a week, for a month, right? And uh, depending on how long you profile it for, you may or may not get the full picture of what's really going on in your application. There's certain applications that run jobs that only run once a month. So if you're only profiling, you know, over a 24-hour period, which sometimes people do, right? They're like, hey, let me just look at this application over 24 hours and, you know, I might get an understanding of what, uh, my profile is for that application, but what if that application runs its main major job that produces the majority of its I.O. on a monthly basis? That happens a lot in financial applications, for example. They do monthly reporting, right? So my, uh, so my two-week two uh, data set, if it doesn't include the end of the month, is not going to be sufficient. Absolutely. So what do you think a good period of time is for people to actually start looking at the data for? I, th I think a minimum of 30 days is really, uh, you know, is, is really critical so if you want to capture the majority of what uh, workloads really uh, are doing. So that's for, that's for the high-level stuff, not necessarily for digging into it, but for looking at the aggregate. Um, Absolutely. Another thing that often comes up is that the granularity of the reporting data isn't the, as granular as what your application might see. So your application might see problems from a second-to-second -second basis, uh, and then when you go look at, let's say, your filer, you might see, you know, minute or five-minute, uh, you know, time frame data, and so you've missed that entirely, and the vendor doesn't believe you, and, you know, <laughs> whatever the problem has, it's on your end, right? So these, these, are, these are sort of classic conversations. Um, so when, a customer, when somebody's looking at actually, you know, they, let's say they've identified all of their stuff and they're looking at, okay, how do I move this stuff 
um, to AWS. Um, what are the places that are that sort of jump out for you as the you know the right places to put things? Um, is there any low-hanging fruit? Um, are there uh, are there things that you think um, are you know are worth mentioning? Um, I, I know personally that I think most certainly. ISVs, they tend to look at things like S3 as being the Swiss Army knife of storage um, because of how the semantics of things work. Um, and so if you're looking for you know, uh, 150 microsecond latency on an IO, S3 is not the right place for that. But you know, if you have a partner solution or something like that that can live in the middle and abstract that for you, um, then you can take care of uh, sort of two birds with one stone type things. Is it, you know, do you think it's cost driven? Do you think uh, people are looking at um, uh, sort of you know, the thing that they've heard about how do, how do people approach where to put stuff? Well, I think it's a little bit of a, of a mix because, I mean, one aspect of it is cost and performance like we're talking about today, but also, you know, the actual features that are required. For sure. And uh, AWS has, you know, a lot of different services uh, in terms of storage. And this is, you know, kind of a 300-level class, so I'm not going to go into the very basics of each of the services. But, um, and this uh, is already really already outdated out based on, of, uh, based <laughs> on you know, some of, if anyone's at Andy's, uh, you know, keynote this morning, uh, they'll know that we've released, you know, several new services and new features and have, you know, a much more extensive slide. So I would definitely recommend if you haven't seen it, you know, it'll be on uh, uh, YouTube soon or available for, uh, for streaming. So you can get even uh, more update, which includes the new FSX for Windows and FSX for Luster services, as well as some SFT new S3 tiers. SFTP transfer as well? SFTP yeah. transfer, yeah. absolutely. Uh, but, you know, just on a, a high level, you know, we offer uh, for services for, for object, block, and file. And as I mentioned, file is now extended because uh, previously we just had uh, EFS, which, uh, you know, supported uh, NFS. Now we have uh, services for, uh, you know, FSX, which is a service for Windows. It offers, you know, real full SMB support. Uh, as well as uh, Luster for HPC workloads. Uh, but, you know, at its core, aside from directly using these services, uh, you know, there's, um, they're building blocks for a lot of uh, uh, partner solutions as well. So depending on uh, what your application really needs, for example, you know, if you have a, uh, you know, an application that doesn't speak S3, a lot of applications these days are starting more and more to support object and support S3. Uh, but not everyone does, not everyone's going to get there. And depending on how you're actually doing your migration, whether you're looking for, you know, purely a lift and shift where you're taking the existing applications and just migrating them as is, uh, you know, or if those applications, if there's, uh, you know, time, money and other constraints to refactor those applications to be what we call more cloud native and support, you know, the native baseline services like S3 and others, uh, you may be constrained by purely the features that you require. Uh, now, if you want to, for instance, get the durability and the, uh, the uh, scalability and other factors that S3 brings to the table, but you require, uh, you know, a file protocol like, let's say, SMB or NFS, uh, you know, there are solutions that can bridge that gap. So it's important to understand what those features are. And actually, actually if you're talking about you know, an on-premises environment where you have a SAN or a NAS, it's often you know, very multi-tenant in, in nature. Uh, so depending on what you're actually going to be migrating, you could be migrating one or more of those applications, and each of them may have different dependencies. So the server's only one component, right? There's also a client component. Let's go to the next slide. Um, one of the things that we noticed is that you know every workload that people are trying to identify is going to have sort of things that that uh, you could call out as a maybe a primary strength. So you know for certain types of vertical use cases, um, there's vertical workloads that happen to load a bunch of stuff into memory, and then once they load everything into memory off of disk, no matter how fast the disk is, it doesn't 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 really matter, right? Because they have to load into memory first, uh, and then they operate on it. We have stuff that's massively compute heavy. Um, they're vertical workloads. We have things that are, you know, extremely network I/O driven. Maybe it's, you know, cluster nodes uh, talking to each other. Um, and then, for from from a solution perspective, you have the question of, you know, can I meet my IOPS and can I meet my throughput requirements? And you don't actually know what those are until you start, you know, measuring those sorts of things. But um, but because we have so many different types of instances, one of the big questions is always, 
okay, I've identified my workload now. How do I, how do I, I, know, I know which product I want, right? That's what it boils down to. I know what product I want. It checks all my boxes. It's got, uh, uh, you know, instantaneous snapshots and writable clones and it tiers to S3 and I can shut it down or I can scale it up and I can scale it, and I can scale it down as well. That part's important. Uh, so, so now what, what do I launch it on? Um, and so the, the hardest part there is figuring out um, uh, whether or not what you launch it on in day one is what's going to always be the case, right? So for example, in something that scales out, you can often uh, start changing the instance types that, you start, that, you, that you're deploying, and then you can roll through the cluster and update the rest of the instance types that are older. In something that might be active-passive, you have to take a hit every time you're going to um, you know, upgrade an instance type. Um, Actually, Henry's working on uh, Alexa for business integration, so you can say stuff like, Alexa, upgrade my filer, uh, and it makes a bigger, makes a bigger instance. So, so you know, one day you'll, you'll probably be able to, uh, to do all of that by voice, uh, voice recognition, but the, the fact is, is today that it's often hit and miss. So part of the identification is what, not, not just what are, is going on in the storage layer, but also what's going on on my clients. How have I sized my clients so that you can right size the instances um, when you get into uh, AWS? Um, and I think one of the reasons why that's uh, you know important uh, to understand is because you know uh, on premises you may have uh, especially if you're talking about you know block level uh, storage devices you know you may have you know fiber channel that you're running things through, and you know that concept doesn't really exist as you go to the cloud and to AWS. So you need to account for uh, the network traffic that's going to be produced by your clients as they're accessing the, uh, the storage that, uh, that you're providing, with, whether that be you know, over iSCSI, for example, or uh, you know, a file protocol. Uh, so in addition to whatever uh, network utilization that the client normally would utilize, uh, you know, you'll need to add the network traffic for the, uh, you know, for the storage as well. And, and, and in the right direction, I might add, right? right absolutely. Direction. So um, if you've thought about sort of how does my EBS traffic influence my front side and, uh, you know, my front side traffic, they're going in opposite directions. Um, and so, so, you know, uh, a lot of times when people look at the storage bandwidths, they don't consider which direction is the traffic flowing in. Um, so uh, tool, some tools are good for this, some tools are not good for this. Um, there's a lot of tools out there. We should talk about tools. We should do a little talking about tools. And I think <laughs> when we're talking about tools, it's important to understand it. As we were saying, you know, sometimes there's a disconnect, uh, you know, whether uh, you're looking at this from an application perspective or whether you're looking at this from an infrastructure perspective. And I think it's, uh, you would agree, Isaiah, that's important to see it from both those sides yep. so you can understand eat all the layers of it, you know. And, and no matter if you're coming from the application team or from the, uh, the IT side, uh, there's different tools that you could run to get those uh, performance and baseline metrics, you know, across them. So whether you're, uh, you want to run something like, uh, like Breeze, which we're going to demo yeah, we'll in like demo a minute, uh, you know, which captures application side, uh, you know, information, or you, you know, you are going to run something from system or storage, uh, which a lot of storage vendors, as you know, have like native capabilities to capture various, um, uh, you know, I.O. and throughput and latency and other information uh, from there. But it's important to collect all that information and then being able to marry that information together to truly understand it and create an agreement between what the application teams uh, believe is the, uh, you know, the, the storage profile and what you're seeing from the system side. And if there's any disconnect there, be able to understand where that is, whether that's some layer of caching that's happening, uh, so that as you migrate that application, you're able to account for those things. So the caching stuff is funny. I know that I've had um, clusters in the past where the, the core filers were, um, had almost no activity, but my clustering, my, ca my caching layer was, was, was crazy busy, um, even just doing things like node-to-node -node fill. Um, I know from the IT side of things, it's often the case that you can't modify your application. And if you look at most of the app, sort of, we'll call them like performance monitoring suites out there, they almost all require instrumentation um, inside of the application. Uh, so, um, and sometimes this is, uh, you can still get statistics off of the host, but usually if you want to know what your application's doing, you know, you have to um, uh, provide some sort of instrumentation um, uh, tool. So like New Relic or, or um, uh, uh, Dynatrace, AppDynamics, those kinds of things. There's other stats that they can gather, you know, without instrumenting things. They can gather stats about what's going on in the system. Um, I think New Relic's one's called StatsD. Um, uh, AppDynamics App um, was one of the first ones to do even uh, 
performance monitoring of stuff like lambda functions. Um, so you, you can gather certain information um, uh, at this, the quote unquote application level. But if you're talking about actual I.O., um, there's really only one way to do that, and that's to look inside of the system calls, so, um, which is what we'll be doing with, uh, with Breeze. So why don't we talk a little bit about this, uh, this tool set? And yeah, sure. This, uh, so, so that we can talk about both Breeze and Mistral, which both by this uh, partner, uh, yeah, Alexis. Yeah, Alexis. So they're a, they're a small partner. Um, yeah, they're UK-based. Uh, and they, they, they sort of, they really only do one thing, and they do it well, um, which is they help debug I.O. problems um, by making tools that make it easier to do that. So we won't, we won't be demoing Mistral today, but we will demo Breeze. Um, and so what makes it interesting is that the, the person who founded this company was a chip designer, and uh, she was sort of sick of having performance problems in her own environment and figured that you know, it was probably worth figuring out how to debug that stuff. And so she figured out an approach. Um, that approach is, um, and they're really transparent about that, that approach is to, um, to overrun um, system calls by using uh, LD preload entries. So their whole application revolves around the concept of, of using LD preload to intercept system calls and in a very, very lightweight fashion um, uh, provide instrumentation around them. They don't just do file system I.O., they also do networking I.O. Um, and the way that the applications tend to be used are that Mistral is the sort of thing that you would set up after you uh, got everything sort of working the way you wanted to and you'd establish that baseline once you'd moved or establish that baseline inside of your, um, your environment um, once you've sort of figured out the problems. Um, and then when you find a problem, Breeze is what you use to sort of dig into it. So um, it's a graphical application, it runs on Linux. Um, and uh, I think if we, actually can you go back to the previous slide for a sec? I think if we look at this list, um, most of the time when we talk with customers, and you guys could validate this for yourselves, most of the time when we talk with customers, they're talking from the perspective of being able to see what's going on in the application or from the perspective of being able to see what's going on at a system level. It's very uncommon to uh, have a chat with a customer and be talking with storage administrators. Uh, that just, I think, is a byproduct of the relationship that AWS has with customers. We tend to be more line of business focused, less sort of traditional IT focused. Um, and that, may, that might shift over time. Um, and the, the folks that I've noticed who have the relationship with the IT folks um, are our uh, consulting partners and our ISVs. So if a customer comes through our field, almost always it's a line of business contact. And if a customer comes through um, one of our partners, almost always it's somebody in IT. So this is quite funny because usually they don't know that the other is talking with the, the customer. Um, these groups don't talk with each other. Uh, and so the IT folks had no idea that um, their workloads were about to go to the cloud, all they maybe had seen over time was that their overall workload requirements had gone down. Because they were running a multi-tenant pool of resources that they were sharing across multiple workloads. And then as those workloads either expanded out to the cloud or migrated to the cloud, all they could see was a, you know, that there were less problems. So um, they didn't necessarily know what the cause of that was. Just everybody else was having a good day because the problem child went away. So these types of things, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, is the title of the slide's a little bit cheeky, but um, you can't figure out the problem by looking at just one perspective is sort of the point, um, that it's very often the case that you have to look at um, multiple perspectives to figure out um, what's actually wrong. Um, and so the, um, the easiest one that you have control over if you're running the application um, is uh, to look at things like system calls. So, all right, cool. Uh, I guess it's okay. demo time. Yeah, let's go into this demo. Okay, so this is a live demo. Uh, we had some challenges, so that's, uh, that's always good. <laughs> All right. We're praying to the demo gods, that, so, but just keep in mind, it is a live demo, so All right. things could go right, things could go wrong. So uh, uh, I'll switch you over to... Thank you. Two. All right, you should uh, be on. All right, cool. So this is, um, this is what the... Uh, yeah, hold on just a second. All right, I think I'm good. Um, so this is, uh, this is what the application looks like. Uh, I'll just walk you through sort of uh, the different areas first. Um, so when you open it, and if you haven't done anything, and we're actually gonna close it and we'll restart it when we run, an, run uh, a program um, to generate a little bit of I.O. Um, so you can see what it does. 
Uh, but uh, there's, there's uh, you know, it's not the best user interface, as engineers typically don't create the best user interfaces. Um, but, uh, and it looks a little old-fashioned, but the data is there, and that's the important part. Um, so um, you can sort of see, I would say, the most important things, which are uh, what are the rates and how long do they take? Um, and there's a lot of different ways to, um, to dig into that data. So, um, so let's close this, and then let's, uh, let's run this application. Okay, great. So, um, so the way that you run it is there is a shell script. And you can see from the usage. Well, BNC spaces. Oh, whoops. Sorry, I did something wrong. If you don't mind, I will just check the README option. Ah, H. Um, so you, you can... Um, you can take the results. They actually have a couple different licensing options. One of the licensing options that they have is that you can sort of just use the, the, the GUI um, to drill into things. Another option that they have is um, that what they call trace only, um, where you can use their application to trace the information, but then not necessarily um, dig into it. Like for, uh, if you were working with them in a, like a consulting fashion, they might ask you to add this trace only option to uh, various jobs that you're running, and then they would um, output the data, and then the data would be uh, the data would be uh, collected, and they would they would they would uh, be able to um, help you interpret the results. So, um, so what we're going to do is we are going to run their trace option. And so the trace option, we're going to output a temporary file, and then we're going to load that temporary file into Breeze. Um, and you can give it um, uh, any command that you like. It has a lot of other options, but for our purposes, um, all we're going to do is give it the uh, temporary directory. So, and then we'll give it a command. And we don't actually care about the output of the command, but what we're more interested in is the, uh, the, um, the IO characteristics. So if you're in, if you're in a vertical uh, workload like EDA, for example, um, something like 50% of most EDA jobs is metadata calls. And uh, if you're in a workload like um, another HPC workload like oil and gas. Um, you have sort of two types of general profiles. One is super small I.O. where you're seeking around in all kinds of random places in a file. And another one is all sorts of really, really big I.O. Um, and in both of those cases, uh, the way that these types of workloads progress is they do a bunch of stuff in parallel and then they come back and they do a, a few things serially and then they go do a bunch of stuff in parallel and they come back and they do a few things serially. Um, it's often the case that those few things serially are small I.O. bound, or they're small I.O.s, and they tend to be uh, bound, uh, CPU bound on the, um, on the storage side, right? Sometimes it's, it's actually disk bound, but usually it's CPU bound. Uh, why is that? Because uh, most metadata systems for storage systems don't scale. Uh, and this is true for everything from, uh, from uh, Lustre to uh, Cumulo to, uh, to Isilon to NetApp. When it comes to metadata torture, if you've ever run um, MDTest, sort of the industry standard uh, you know, met metadata torture tool, um, these, these tools will expose uh, the scalability limits of metadata um, layers inside of solutions. Um, there are a few that are, that are, that are pretty good. Like um, uh, I personally recommend a product called Weka.io a lot. Um, they have a very, very scalable system. I've, I've run internally in AWS. I've run clusters in excess of 300 nodes. Um, what that means uh, for me when I run something like MDTest uh, is that I'm looking for uh, how can I keep my application CPU bound? 
Because at the end of the day, if you want your application to run fast, you have to keep it CPU bound. So you want a platform that can feed it the data as, much, uh, as quickly as possible. But if you're stuck on these single-threaded metadata calls, then it can't actually do the real data I.O. part. So um, all right, so then I, ru I run this, and then it asks for uh, a saved trace. It's a breeze trace. Oh, yeah, you can also feed it strace output, which is pretty cool, actually. Go to the file system. We put it in temp, and it's B. So it's going to load that stuff in. And I know, because it was fined, uh, that it's going to be mostly metadata on a local file system. This is a local file system, by the way, right? So we'll, um, we can attach EFS. I don't have uh, FSX for Lester, um, which uh, uh, bums me out. Um, but <laughs> um, but we, we can do some other stuff, too. So, but, so this, is, uh, this is actually a really typical uh, sort of subsection of uh, a workload that somebody has tried to move. Uh, and they have problems, and then when you go get the breeze data, you find out, oh, it's actually because you have tons of small I.O. So when we look at what it considers to be um, bad I.O., uh, it's things that are really small um, that actually should have taken a lot less time. So um, this is milliseconds duration. This is not microseconds duration. For a local file system, this is actually really slow. Uh, so why, why was it so slow? Uh, well, it's on the root disk, which is EBS. EBS is not the world's most performant block device. It's a very scalable block device for a multi-tenant environment, but it's not the same thing as talking to a local NVMe uh, device like an instance store. Um, we have some of those too, so we can, uh, we can do some tests there. Um, so we also see that we have a lot of zero-byte operations. Now there's a waterfall version here um, where you can explore if you have like a, some, a compile job or something like that, it will show you a tree of uh, these things. Um, it'll show you system environment variables. Now, why is that interesting? Well, in organic environments, um, EDA is a great example, again, where somebody's touched an environment for, like, lots of different people have touched an environment over a period of 10, 15 years. Um, nobody remembers all of the scripts that people put in there, and nobody knows if all of that data is valid uh, when they move a portion of their workload to AWS. So um, this is not just a problem for EDA, it's also a problem for media and entertainment. Um, so I want to move a render job to AWS. What do I have to move? Yeah, so there's a lot of you know, components <laughs> that really go into that, so right? It's not, the, just, not just the binaries, right? There's a bunch no. of other stuff too? Absolutely. Okay. All right. so, um, yeah, so answering the question of what do I have to move um, it can also be addressed with, uh, with Breeze. And the reason is they can print out in Breeze a list of file system paths that you touched. Uh, you can extract the directories from that. So when you run your job and say, well, I know that this job is successful on-prem and I want to move it to the cloud, you can actually have a finite list so you don't end up with this massive sort of e-discovery problem of, of uh, I guess I either have to move everything or I can't run my job. So that I have to move everything is great until you get into an environment that has hundreds and hundreds of terabytes and you have a you know, 300 meg Comcast line. So that doesn't work well. Um, yeah, or you end up in a dependency hell situation where you move yeah. something and then you end up, totally. hey, my application is broke because it depended on five different things that I didn't end up moving because I didn't realize that the ad application actually utilized that, so I didn't scope it into my migration. For sure. Um, so let's see here. So here's our profiling data. So here's our I.O. count. So we ran that, we ran that uh, find on slash USR, and in the process of doing that, um, it generated 150,000 system calls. So if your NAS cluster is having a bad day and you had something in a script that was doing something like that and what it was trying to go do wasn't in memory if it was you know, potentially disk bound, uh, the latency for all of the, everything that's on either side of the job is gonna uh, extend quite a bit. So, um, so what else can you discover from this? Um, well, I mentioned there was the whole path issue. Um, and so since it went off and discovered a lot of uh, uh, directories, the directory list here is going to be quite long. Um, but I don't think that that's unusual in production. I think it's really common for people over time to put things in lots of different places. And like I mentioned earlier, if you have something that was generated by people, they oftentimes don't even remember that they put it there. That's the whole reason they don't typically go back to things, right? If you have something that's generated by a computer, then um, it's possible that you would need access to all of that data all of the time anyway, uh, and you probably can generate that list. 
Um, so uh, the next thing that was interesting about um, these things is that uh, there's inconsistency across even the same operations on the same media. So if you've ever used, um, uh, if you've ever had a, um, a hot neighbor, sort of a, you know, the noisy neighbor syndrome um, in an on-premises environment, and you're running um, the same job now that you, draw, that you uh, ran last Thursday, and last Thursday it was fast and now it's slow, boy, that's the, that's the stub your toe bane of your existence, right? I don't know why this is slow. Um, and meanwhile, the DBA is coming over telling you that, uh, you know, I ran, this thing last or I ran this thing last Wednesday and it was fast and I'm running it today and it's slow. So these kinds of things where, um, where applications are stepping on each other, uh, you can understand what the variance is, what's the high point of the noisy neighbor syndrome um, by looking at the amount of time that it takes uh, for these uh, system calls to complete. Um, so for example, here's um, uh, two opens One's two microseconds, one's five microseconds. So it doesn't seem like it's a big difference in time, but in reality, it's more than a 100% increase in time. So if you have something that's going over the network, and that isn't five microseconds, but it's instead 150 microseconds, and all of a sudden now it's taking 300, or sorry, um, yeah, and all of a sudden it's now it's taking 300 microseconds, if you have 150,000 of those, you're probably gonna notice, right? So these, these kinds of things, they add up quite a bit. Um, so the, the general point is, is that um, when you're looking at application data, it's important to be able to have uh, real data that's generated as close to the application as possible. Uh, if you can only generate stuff on the, on the uh, storage side, then you only see half of the picture. Uh, and of course you can get um, information about how things were invoked. So, um, it, it does something quite nice for you, which is break down for you what the IOs, uh, what the IO parameters are like. I'll just minimize this portion of the window, and I should be able to move this over here, so you can see sort of what the top talkers are, um, and you can search through things as well. So it has a couple different views. So it's quite a handy, um, quite a handy application. Um, so now to compare uh, how long this thing took. Uh, with um, another media, we'll just go back to our uh, host where we have a couple other, let's see here, shift control T, okay, great. So we have um, different types of EBS here and different types of instance store, and we have an instance store as well. So um, one of the things that people uh, frequently, uh, I, was, I don't want to say don't take into consideration because it's definitely in the back of their mind, is that since AWS is a multi-tenant environment and because different regions have different levels of popularity, there's this notion of sort of a wave of activity, uh, which is to say that um, at night in one region uh, on using one service, you might look at what you can collect from your application and you might get one performance profile. In a different region on the same service at a different time, you might get a completely different performance profile. Uh, so this is this sort of uh, comes with sort of the good things. People come to AWS for the services, and then when you come here for the services, the services don't give you uniform experience. Uh, so th this is one of those things that you sort of have to take the good with the bad. Um, the teams uh, that manage these services go to the ends of the earth to make the experience for each user fantastic. Uh, and one thing is for sure, when you provision, let's say, an EBS volume and you say, I want to get 3,000 IOPS, you will always get 3,000 IOPS. Not a penny more, not a penny less. <laughs> so they've gotten very, very good at these kinds of things because they've been doing it a long time. Um, there, there's uh, a few other environments, notably a lot of on-prem environments, where you don't really have the capability of doing those kinds of things. And so the way that you handle noisy neighbor syndromes is by either buying more hardware uh, or trying to segregate uh, workloads, either by time or by where you're running them. So, um. yeah, and I think it's important, you know, since there are those different types of resources, as Isaiah is setting up the uh, next demo, to actually test these uh, workflows that you're running on AWS and the uh, kind of agility you get by being able to just spin up EC2 instances, uh, you know, on demand when you need them, not having to uh, necessarily, um, you know, worry about um, having to pre-purchase or do anything like that. 
uh, on them. Uh, so whether you're going to put your own application on there or whether you're going to spin up a uh, solution for storage, you can actually spin up that real environment, even if it's for a day or for a few hours of testing, and you can actually uh, try out your real workload without having to uh, you know, necessarily invest ahead of time in that before you really make that decision. Uh, so I think that's really important. So not only testing and baselining against your real workload, but you know, actually testing your, uh, your workload and against the various storage services. So whether that be uh, you know, testing it on GP2 volumes, you know, which is just a general purpose volumes where you kind of get uh, IO capacity or IOs based on the capacity of the volumes, uh, or if you need to step up to IO1 volumes or uh, even utilize instance storage, right? Uh, and the various different uh, solutions, some of them support, uh, you know, using, uh, you know, your choice of essentially what type of EBS volumes or whether you use instant storage. So uh, actually testing those options, you know, helps, uh, you know, significantly. Okay, cool. So we're going to now do um, the same thing that we did before. Um, and we're going to do it um, partially just so you can see the differenti dif difference between um, even with, you know, forget about page cache, right? Page cache is, there's some amount of metadata that page cache helps with, but um, doesn't help that much. Uh, so it's not, in other words, page cache is memory bandwidth type latencies, which means that if you have, uh, if you have latencies that are uh, network related, uh, uh, you know, it's not gonna help you everywhere. So we'll start with, um, with the, uh, the instance store. Just in case everyone isn't familiar with Instant Store, because a lot of people, you know, especially who are just starting out with uh, with AWS, think of you know just EBS and everything is on EBS volumes. Instant Store is available on certain instance types, and what it is is local ephemeral storage. Uh, on the newer instance types, it's all NVMe based, so you get a very quick direct path to that uh, that local storage. And then we'll generate the same sort of thing for um, for EBS. And you might think, oh, this is just such a small thing, but I think you'll be surprised in the, in the results that, that we see. So the instant store one came back immediately, even when we were executing additional um, stuff. This one is uh, not coming back immediately. Great. And then just for kicks, we'll go kick it off um, for the other one as well. And we'll look at the instance store one for comparison. Yeah, so this will give you kind of an idea of what the difference is, what it looks like when actually doing this against uh, an EBS volume, you know, over the network versus uh, direct NVMe path to, uh, to the instance storage that's local to, the, to that particular instance. Cool, all right. So. Um, so this is, and I'm not going to close the application, I'm just going to import another one. So we saw like 90 milliseconds total for the, um, the overall thing. Um, this is the right run, yeah. Oh, I minimized the other thing. Where, what's the place, what's it, where's it called? Here it is. Yeah. There we go, back to normal. Okay, so 90 milliseconds of bad IO, and if we look at the total time duration, 703 milliseconds overall for the first run, which was off of our boot volume. Um, and then when we uh, did this over in NVMe, the total duration was one millisecond. Uh, so you can imagine that if you were trying to profile an application on-prem and you got one millisecond and then you went to the cloud and you got 700 milliseconds, you'd probably be pretty upset because you have a 700% decrease in performance. Uh, so this happens all the time, and the knee-jerk reaction is, abort, <laughs> go back to on-prem. Uh, but instead, you can figure out now why is this happening um, and uh, try other, other solutions. 
And that's why this planning and testing that I mentioned is like so uh, kind of important because you don't want that to be happening at the time of migration, right? You don't want to go uh, migrate your workload, then find out, you know, customers complaining and you're getting 700 millisecond uh, response time. And now you got to all of a sudden scramble and figure out, okay, well, am I going to fix this on the fly or am I going to go fail back? And more often than not, the answer is going to be, okay, let's fail back and do this at another time. And then, you know, customer has bad taste in their mouth. They don't want to move their application anymore. So uh, you want to avoid that kind of uh, situation. And, you know, you can easily do that using these kind of baseline tools, you run the, you know, the baseline on your on-premise environment, understand that I have O profile, run the actual application or as close to the actual application as you can on AWS, run the baseline there and try it with different options, right? Whether that be, you know, the native storage services or whether that be, uh, you know, a, a storage partner system, solution. a partner solution that yeah. you can get from the marketplace like, uh, like Weck.io or NetApp or, or Cumulo or, yeah. or, Cumulo or any, any of those We'll talk also a little bit sort of like how do I make a decision about which one of those is right for me, um, which isn't really in the scope of this, but people always ask that question, so we thought maybe it would be helpful. Um, so I actually killed the fines on the EBS stuff because I thought that, um, uh, you know, we don't have all day. Um, and you guys probably have some questions to ask. But when you go look at this, yeah, I saw that. We'll go look at the PI ops one because that should be faster. So there's two ways for you to import the data. Um, the first way to import the data is you can dig into all of the data, which we saw was a like 700 megabyte um, uh, trace file. And then the second way to um, dig into it is just to load the profiling information. Uh, profiling information is all that we need to see that um, EBS is slow. Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that you would, you, you would probably do like a, a timer where you would say start and then I'm gonna run a program and then I'm gonna end and I'm subtract the time. Um, and you can do that from an aggregate perspective, but if you do that from a system call perspective, it gives you a much better sense of what's fast and what's slow. So, for example, you might find that the data path is very fast, but you might find that the metadata path is very slow, or inverse, right? It just depends on your environment. And I'm running this on a, um, a C5D uh, 16, X16 or something like that. Yeah, um, so it's, like, it's, not, it's not too shabby. Right, so this is a fast box. Um, in the meanwhile, I guess uh, I'll, uh, I'll just pop the stack to that, you know, what should I run discussion? Um, so people often ask, you know, I'm using X on-prem, should I run the same thing in the, in the cloud? Um, often the answer is, uh, if you wanna, uh, it depends on how you manage the data. So NetApp folks, and I was a NetApp customer for forever, um, if, if I had a volume that was on NetApp, it made sense to me to use SnapMirror to manage the replication and the migration of that workload. Um, as soon as I get to higher level stuff, like let's say I'm using Oracle, it makes more sense to use DataGuard, right, or, or Golden Gate or something like that. Um, if I'm talking about um, application data that's inside of a cluster, uh, I'm probably not running NetApp anyway. I've probably got something that um, scales out more, hor more horizontally um, that I can still keep in sort of like one namespace, like an Isilon or a Luster or something like that. Um, when when it comes to uh, picking up and going into the cloud, a lot of people are, they look at the software, but they don't necessarily look at the hardware uh, beneath it. So if you had Luster installed on-prem and you looked at running FSx for Luster in the cloud um, as a, like a scratch place to, to do work, um, the workflow that you have on-prem is to sort of set it up and leave it there. And the workflow that you have in the cloud would be to store stuff in S3 and then start your FSx for Luster cluster uh, stage the data, load it into your Scratch environment, run your jobs, and then take your results and write them back out to S3. So what, what part of that do you care about? Do you care about how long it takes a job? No, you care about the total elapsed time. So if you have a ton of ingest data that you have to stage inside of that environment, maybe that's not the right solution for you, right? So, um, so in the media and entertainment space, um, where you have a mixture of uh, clients where you have both Linux and you have Windows, what you might want is things like um, multi-protocol multi volumes, and not just multi-protocol volumes, but fast multi-protocol volumes. Um, and so in those types of situations, the first place that we often um, point people at is uh, uh, things like Cumulo um, uh, and, uh, and Weka.io. Um, if you um, are super comfortable with things like SnapMirror and you are using features like SnapVault or, or, um, or SnapLock, 
um, for inter implementing Enterprise Worm uh, on your file systems, um, then things like NetApp um, cloud volumes on tap uh, make a lot of sense. And uh, just to uh, eliminate any ambiguity, there, um, NetApp has rebranded a bunch of stuff. Um, the ONTAP software appliance is called um, Cloud Volumes on Tap. The one that they run out of a co-location facility is called Cloud Volume Services. So if you go stop by their booth and they're telling you about Cloud Volume Services, that's run out of a colo. Uh, and it's a, it's a multi-tenant uh, environment. You get a vFiler um, and it's, uh, you know, it's quite convenient. Um, but when you start looking at your bill and you see all these egress charges, that's why, that's why it's happening. You'll know why after that. Um, uh, if you want control, then running something like uh, ONTAP or Cumulo or WEC.io or um, Quobyte or BGFS or Lust or any of these things uh, make a lot of sense inside of your VPC. If you came to the cloud because you wanted um, uh, services and you wanted less to manage, then looking at things like FSX Luster um, make a lot more sense because, or EFS, right? Because uh, in spite of the fact that you have the staging uh, period that you're gonna have to put up with, uh, the trade-off is, is that you don't have any infrastructure to worry about. Um, so uh, only you can make the right decision for you, but um, those are the things that people um, often have to uh, keep in mind. Yeah, so th those kind of you know, methodologies and understandings of, is where we kind of steer customers to when we talk about uh, the different uh, filing solutions. But then it's important, you know, just to reiterate the point once again, you know, once you kind of narrow in on, let's say, hey, you know, maybe I want to run, you know, cloud volumes on tap, maybe I want to run Cumulo because those kind of match uh, the profiles of the features I need, those kind of match the scalability I want, uh, you know, you want to then go and actually deploy it, test it, POC it, see if it uh, actually works the way you're expecting to. Because, uh, you know, again, AWS Cloud enables that to be a really easy and seamless process, right? A lot of those solutions that we mentioned, uh, you know, are available right on the AWS Marketplace. You could just uh, go there, deploy them, test it, and, um, and understand really what that, uh, that means before you have to go and make any kind of large-scale investment. So I guess I wasn't being fair. I didn't, uh, um, I didn't uh, capture the, uh, the stat stuff. So to be fair to the EBS guys, because uh, they work super hard, uh, I'll just run it again without the stat. Okay, good. All right. There is data there. Okay, good. And it didn't exit cleanly, so we'll get a chance to see actually uh, what Breeze says about stuff like that. Cool. Um, so on EBS for IO1, the total elapsed time was uh, 687 milliseconds. So that's a multi-tenant service, service, and although it was faster than my local, my local system disk, which is also an EBS, um, it was faster because it was IO1, not necessarily GP2. Um, it was still 687% uh, slower than using instant store. So when people go from like on-prem and they've got their latest, greatest DDN box or they've got their um, latest, greatest all-flash Isilon cluster and they come into the cloud and they say, why is everything slow? This is the reason. The reason is they're used to local NVMe flash type latencies um, in a single tenant environment um, where there's not comp they're not competing for anything uh, and then uh, they're going to an environment that's not built for that. So, um, and that's where the uh, FSX for Lustre comes in uh, and that's where um, uh, third-party solutions like uh, like Wakio come in. Um, okay, cool. So, uh, what did it say about how things died? We just go look at that. like there's a button I can't see. Is there a button I can't see? Maybe there yes. is.
Well, I think we, I think we can get the idea of the differences between you know kind of the different uh, EBS volumes as well sure. as uh, instant store from uh, what we've seen in the I/O collection. All right, cool. So uh, we have 48 seconds left. Um, <laughs> so two things, I guess. Uh, one, thanks everybody for staying. Uh, we hope that this uh, was able to extract value um, uh, for you. And we'll hit the button. Is this the button? That's the button. Oh, that button. Is that the right button? Right. Ah, right. Yeah. Uh, and then um, uh, for some of the stuff that we talked about, we've got uh, links up there uh, if you want to dig into things. Um, the most important part is when we go back to sort of those steps that, um, oh yeah, you guys can take pictures if you want. Uh, you can find all of these, by the way, um, on, on the marketplace or, or just by Googling. Um, a lot of people, uh, when they look at uh, trying these things out, they look for um, you know, what's the cheapest for me to try out. Um, so uh, I guess I'll plug that we, in the partner organization, we actually have a, f a credit fund. Um, and so if you are interested in trying any of these commercial solutions out and uh, you don't want to pay for it, um, then contact your AWS sales rep and say, hey, I want to try out this partner solution. What kind of credits can you hook me up with? Um, and we have a process for doling out those credits. So you'd be able to um, sort of define what, uh, what done looks like for, you, for your project. Uh, and what the success criteria are. That's part of the process for soliciting for you know, uh, funding of these kinds of things. Um, and then uh, we would be able to um, help fund this project. So, uh, so if you've been looking at, I want to move a particular workload that might be quirky to AWS, and you don't have uh, a budget to um, sort of play around, um, then this is a, a great way of, of uh, taking care of that monetary problem. So thanks very much for your, uh, for your time. I hope you enjoy the rest of reInvent. Thank you, everyone.